Chapter 10 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 10 Telegraphing Through Space. An old time swindler cornered by Galileo. Some interesting early experiments. Sir William Priest's method. How the present system is worked by Marconi and others. The importance of wireless telegraphy. Communicating with friends far out on the ocean. A wireless press news in America. The tuning of wireless instruments in order to obtain secrecy. Experience in the Russo-Japanese War. An exciting wireless incident. Noiseless wireless music. The idea of telegraphing to a distance without the aid of connecting wires is by no means a new one, although its practical accomplishment is within the memory of all. Some three hundred years ago a man claimed to be able to send wireless messages over a distance of thousands of miles by means of two simple magnetic needles pivoted on dials around which the letters of the alphabet were written. No matter at what distance the two dials were placed from each other, the inventor stated that he had only to move the one magnetic needle to point at any desired letter, whereupon the distant needle would immediately turn in sympathy to the corresponding letter on its dial. When the inventor was asked by the great Italian astronomer Galileo to show the instruments at work across his room, the adventurer said that when close together, the magnets could not work. They required to be separated by a great distance before the one could influence the other. Galileo then suggested that the inventor should leave one instrument with him, take the other to any distance he desired, and then send him a message. But needless to say, this test was not convenient to the swindler. Other equally absurd proposals were made, and no doubt believed in by some, but it naturally was not till after the practical electric telegraph was in use that any genuine attempt at wireless telegraphy was made. Of the early experimenters, the most interesting is James Bowman Lindsay of Dundee, Scotland, who read a paper before the British Association in 1859 on, quote, telegraphing without wires, end quote. It is interesting to note that the illustrious Michael Faraday and our great scientist William Thompson, Lord Kelvin, were both present at this meeting. Lindsay was a great genius who lived for learning. He went to Dundee as a science lecturer in the Watt Institution, and later he acted as tutor and conducted private classes. While acting for 17 years as teacher in the Dundee prison on a salary of 50 pounds per annum, he made many researches in electricity, constructing his own apparatus, and denying himself everything but the bare necessities of life to enable him to follow out his studies. In 1854, Lindsay took out a patent, quote, for transmitting telegraph messages by means of electricity or magnetism through and across water without submerged wires, the water being made available as the connecting and conducting medium. End quote. By such means, Lindsay sent telegraph messages across the Tay at a point where the river is about a mile in width. 
More recently, Sir William Priest worked out a method of wireless telegraphy on the principle that an electric current passing along one wire will, at each make and break of the current, set up a similar current in any other wire placed parallel to it, although the wires be placed miles apart from each other. The one drawback to this system is that the lengths of these two parallel wires have to be increased in proportion to the distance between them. Each wire must be about equal in length to the distance between the sending and receiving stations. It is apparent that on land, one might as well connect the two stations directly by wire. But this system has proved of service on more than one occasion where submarine cables have broken down, as between the English coast and the Isle of Wight, and between the mainland of Scotland and the island of Mull. If the distance from shore to shore be five miles, then a five-mile line is run along each coast. The present method of wireless telegraphy, worked out by Signor Marconi, is more truly wireless, and is on quite a different principle. What Cook and Wheatstone did for the electric telegraph in Britain and Morris in the United States, Marconi has done for wireless telegraphy. None of these inventors discovered the principles that made telegraphy possible, nor did they originate the ideas, but they brought known principles into practical form. When each country nowadays knows exactly what is happening in the other countries of the world, it would be surprising if the whole field of such an important matter as wireless telegraphy had been left to one worker. The following are some of the most prominent names in connection with wireless work. Marconi, De Forest, Fezentin, Lodge Muirhead, Popov, Jackson, Armstrong, Orling, Dolbert, Stone, Artem, Lapel, and Polson, etc. The general principle underlying all these systems may be easily understood. In ordinary telegraphy, the sender has beside him the battery and contact key while the line wire conducts the current to the distant telegraph instrument. It will be remembered that the contact key is merely a small lever which, when depressed, closes the circuit and allows the current to flow from the battery to the telegraph line. An ordinary bell push would serve the purpose, though not so conveniently. Let us now imagine the whole of the apparatus to be placed at the receiving station so that the battery with its contact key and the telegraph instrument are all connected up close together at the one place. If the would-be sender at the distant station could now, by any means, influence the contact key at the receiving station, making it close and open the battery circuit at will, he would then be able to operate the telegraph instrument and convey intelligible messages. It is, of course, quite impossible for the sender to operate the contact key, which is now far beyond his reach, but it is possible to substitute something in the place of the contact key, which can be influenced from a distance, even though the sender be hundreds of miles away from the telegraph apparatus he desires to control. At the receiving station, 
We now take away the ordinary contact key and replace it by a small tube or box of metal filings so that the current will have to pass through the filings to get from the battery to the telegraph instrument. The filings are only very loosely packed together, and they offer so much resistance to the current that it cannot pass through them. This little tube, with the filings in their normal condition, is equivalent to the ordinary contact key when open. These filings are, along with every existing thing, immersed in the great ocean of ether which pervades all space. We shall become more familiar with this all-pervading medium in a later chapter. For the present, we shall be content to know that it is waves in this great medium which provide the connecting link between the transmitter and the distant receiver in wireless telegraphy. It is a marvelous fact that if certain ether or electric waves fall upon these little metal filings, their electrical resistance to the current is so far diminished that the current is able to pass through them and operate the telegraph instrument. The tube is then shaken, the filings return once more to their ordinary condition, and no current can pass. It will be observed that in this action we have an equivalent of the ordinary telegraph contact key, which may be closed and opened at will. It only remains to produce the necessary electric waves to operate it from a distance. An ordinary electric spark produces waves in the surrounding ether, but a feeble spark can only give a small result. By means of what is known as an induction coil, we can so increase the pressure of an electric current that it will leap across an air gap, and in doing so, it will produce a perfect torrent of sparks. Owing to this electrical discharge, the surrounding ether is disturbed, and waves travel out in all directions. It is remarkable the distance at which these waves may be detected by the little tube of filings already described. In seeking to describe the function of these filings, they were said to cohere together when the ether waves fell upon them, and from this description the tube became known as the coherer. We may picture the operator at the sending station switching the current on and off from the induction coil, producing torrents of sparks at will. He knows that each time he does so, ether waves will reach the distant receiver and cause the telegraph instrument to record the signal. If the sender wishes to signal the Morse code, he will arrange the duration of his spark torrents accordingly. Three sharp torrents following close at each other's heels will record the Morse signal for the letter S. All the other signals which are detailed in figure 4, page 57, may be signaled in the same way. As the coherer tube is a very small thing, it is connected by wires to metal arms, or capacities, which intercept the ether waves and conduct the electromagnetic effect to the filings in the small tube. It will be understood that the simple apparatus which I have described is descriptive merely of the general principle of wireless telegraphy. One can get very good results with such apparatus over a very short distance, for long distances, we require a more powerful disturber of the ether and a more delicate detector at the distant receiving station. For distances up to about 200 miles, a storage battery and an induction coil can produce sufficient disturbance in the ether. 
To send messages to greater distances necessitates the wireless station being equipped with an engine and dynamo for generating the necessary electric currents with which to set up the ether waves. The receiver may be some form of delicate coherer or anti-coherer. This latter term signifies that the receiver does not require to be tapped or shaken after each impulse. Another form of detector is based upon electrochemical changes which take place in the receiver when the ether waves arrive. Those in this class are called electrolytic detectors, while they might be described also as anti-coherers. One such device is composed of a small tube similarly arranged to the ordinary filings tube, but with two little blocks or rods of tin, between which there is placed a semi-liquid paste sometimes composed of alcohol with tin filings and lead oxide. The operation of this tube is exactly the reverse of that of the metal filings tube. It will be remembered that when the ether waves arrived, they enabled the filings to close the local battery circuit. In the electrolytic detector, the arrival of the ether waves stops a current which is kept flowing through the detector. The chemical paste in its normal condition permits the battery current to get across from the one tin block to the other, but the stimulation of the ether waves produces a chemical action which immediately breaks down this bridge and stops the current. Upon the withdrawal of the ether waves, the paste returns at once to its normal condition and allows the battery current to pass again. The signals are therefore a sudden breaking and making of the battery circuit. How can these signals be read? If a telephone receiver is connected to the tube and battery, it will be very easy to tell when the battery circuit is broken. There will be quite a loud click heard in the telephone. Any person using the ordinary telephone may hear a similar click by depressing the telephone hook or support while the receiver is held to the ear. Each time the support is depressed, the battery current is cut off from the telephone, and it is the stopping of the current causing a sudden change in the magnetic field of the receiver which produces the click. This makes quite a good demonstration of how the wireless messages are read. Then there are magnetic detectors, in which we depend upon the incoming ether waves affecting a piece of magnetized soft iron. The general principle of these will be understood if we picture an endless band of soft iron wire kept in motion so that bit by bit the wire passes close to the poles of a permanent magnet. The magnetism of the wire tends to change as it passes from the influence of one pole to the other. It was discovered that the time required for this change was very greatly reduced when ether or electric waves fell upon the soft iron band. The magnetic change is thus rendered so sudden that it is capable of inducing a momentary electric current in a coil of wire through which it passes. This induced current is detected by a telephone receiver which is included in the circuit. The signals of the Morse code may be read easily by such means. The operator in the photograph facing page 94 is reading wireless signals by means of the telephone receiver, which is attached to his head so that he may have the free use of his hands. There are many other interesting devices for detecting the arrival of the ether waves, but sufficient detail has been given to enable the reader to understand the general principles. 
At all wireless stations, there is some metallic arrangement extending up into the air to entrap the ether waves. Such arrangements are called antennae. Those of us who spent some of our boyhood leisure hours in collecting beetles and other insects will find this word a familiar one. It is the name of those little horns or feelers extending from the head of the insect. With this picture in one's mind, one can see the appropriateness of the word as used in wireless telegraphy. One method is to erect a simple wire on a pole. In another, a whole network of wires is supported from strong steel towers built to a height of over 200 feet. Sometimes the wires have been arranged like a great inverted pyramid, while one system employs a huge sheet iron tube, not unlike a factory chimney, reaching a height of over 400 feet. Some of the most recent transmitters do not disturb the ether by means of torrents of sparks. They employ a very rapid to-and-fro, or alternating current, to set up the necessary ether waves. This method has been found much more economical in the power required for a given range of communication, besides having other advantages. In the first days of wireless telegraphy, we used to employ the picture of two men shouting to each other across a distance as being analogous to two wireless telegraph instruments, while two persons using an ordinary air telephone or speaking tube represented two ordinary telegraph instruments connected via a wire. The simple analogy of two men shouting always suggested the possibility of some third party being within range to hear the communication. Then again, one knows the difficulties arising from a number of people all shouting at the one time. Similar difficulties were bound to present themselves to the wireless telegraphists when they began to multiply the number of their installations. From the outset, we heard a good deal about the interference and interception of messages. One ship would even pick up a message sent out by some rival system of wireless telegraphy. This formed the most serious problem that the wireless telegraphist had to face. That very considerable success in overcoming this difficulty has been made is demonstrated by the following facts. One of our battleships was communicating by wireless telegraph to another ship of war distant from it about 500 miles. While this signaling was in progress, another wireless instrument on board the same battleship was receiving messages from a third vessel within close range. How can this be done? The instruments are, quote, tuned, end quote, so that they respond to each other. There is an experiment with tuning forks which gives us a suitable analogy. The airwaves, sound, from one tuning fork will cause a second fork of the same pitch to vibrate also. Unless the two forks are tuned to the same pitch, the one will not respond to the other. We need not trouble with the details of electrical tuning, except to point out that the transmitter has to be arranged to send out a definite rate of ether waves, while the receiver is arranged to respond to that same rate of vibration. In these days, when wireless telegraphy has an established position, it is hardly necessary to point out its great value. We may debate the probability of wireless competing with ordinary telegraphy on land, or whether it will ever enter into serious competition with ocean cables. 
We cannot, however, fail to see the very wide field which wireless telegraphy has entirely to itself. It has no rivals in communicating with ships far out at sea. It is impossible to overestimate the value of this. In addition to the communication of ordinary intelligence, there is the possibility of a ship in distress being able to call for help from those who cannot see her. It is difficult to realize what it would be to find ourselves drifting helplessly out of the track of steamers, where it would be impossible to attract attention to our disabled ship. Or picture the crew upon a sinking steamer, unable to call for any assistance. We have had some very remarkable instances of large vessels sinking and the wireless operator succeeding in calling the help of other steamers to which it would have been impossible to signal by any other known means. Indeed, one has only to read the daily papers to be impressed with the great importance of being able to signal through space without the necessity of connecting wires. That wireless telegraphy is likely to prove of value in warfare is appreciated thoroughly by both military and naval authorities. The old proverb that to be forewarned is to be forearmed still holds good. It is obvious that the earlier we can learn the whereabouts of the enemy, the more chance we have of dealing with them to advantage. End of chapter 10